Gina Della from Pella. Choose five years no interest and five months no first payment or 10-year 2.99 APR financing. Ends August 31st. Set your free consultation today at PellaWI.com slash radio or 855-PELLA-WI. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So very glad to have you with us. Special thank you to everybody who came out for our inaugural WTMJ Open yesterday. I didn't get to play, but I got to see a number of people. And um, the club at Lock LaBelle did a great job. And all the people behind the scenes did a great job in pulling that off. And it was a pleasure, absolute pleasure to be part of it. So after... After the the broadcast from the golf thing and all, went home and and I, once a month or so I play in this like trivia contest and our, our team won. Our, our team won. It was, it was my wife and myself, and we, we brought in a couple ringers: my stepdaughter Jenny and her husband Darren, and our friends Paul and Linda. And we we were we we did okay. Ended up winning. I I'm. I, I have a lot of knowledge, useless and important information, so I, I'm pretty decent at those things. But the, the final question, my, my stepdaughter nailed it. Uh, 1949, 1949, Canada added a province, and that was the last province Canada had added until, like, 1999. Nobody else knew it but my, my stepdaughter, Jenny. She nailed it. Um, Newfoundland. I would never, I could have sat there all night and not gotten Newfoundland, but she, she nailed it. So we ended up winning. So we, we, we take home all the, the glory and stuff. It was just a lot of fun. All right. Serious stuff, some lighter stuff, a lot of ground to cover on today's program. It's never going to end. If, if you're wondering when, when this pandemic is going to end, I think it's very clear that it's not going to end. At least it's not going to end anytime soon. Because what, what's happened is you have, a, a, what in Wisconsin, it's about 50%, maybe a little bit more of people who've been vaccinated. So you have a number of people who have been, un, who are unvaccinated and they are vulnerable to getting COVID. And now we are finding out that among people who are vaccinated, there is at least some school of thought thinking that the vaccinations, well, that that your immunity is going to disappear after six months or eight months or nine months, meaning that you have to get another booster shot. So now you're going to be fighting this battle about not only just trying to get people vaccinated in the first place, but then trying to get people who have already been vaccinated to get themselves, get another booster shot six, seven, eight months after the, the last shots. And there's some controversy as to how much you need that. And the CDC is kind of all over the map. Last month, they said, no, you don't need booster shots. Now they've decided you do need booster shots, all of which contributes, I, I think, to the uncertainty and the question about, you know, what, what, where, where is the science behind this? But there, there's no question that you have these variants. And while if you are vaccinated, the variants you are you are protected in large measure from the variants. The number of breakthrough cases is statistically not that significant, 0.1%. On top of that, if you even if you get are one of the people that get the breakthrough case, your chances of being hospitalized and or dying as a general rule are are slim to none. 
which isn't to say that there can't be somebody out there that has an adverse reaction. But nevertheless, you, there there are these breakthrough cases. And if you believe the government and the scientists, they're saying that, well, it, it might occur more in the future. And then you heard during our newscast, they're saying, well, look, we, we think that people might need booster shots for years, you know, just for for years, which says that, that COVID is going to be here for the foreseeable future, that it's not going to go away. And if you look at the history of viruses in, in the world, um, viruses, they, they, they tend to mutate. You know, somebody gets a particular virus and then that virus mutates inside that person and, and maybe they give a different strain to somebody else. So, I mean, right now we're dealing with Delta, but after Delta, there's going to be Lambda and there's going to be Gamma. And, you know, you, it, it is very, very apparent at least to me, that, that COVID is not going to go away, which means we figure out how how we're going to live with this while encouraging people to get their booster shots if they feel comfortable doing that and to get vaccinated in the first place, which I continue to believe is is the ultimately the way out of this, keeping people vaccinated so fewer people if fewer people get COVID, Fewer people are then going to be able to pass COVID on, et cetera, et cetera. But we're not anywhere close to that. So it's very apparent to me. I think this is the the ugly reality. COVID isn't going to go away anytime soon. So the question becomes, how do we live with this? And, and, and what is what is acceptable? The one good thing with everybody being vaccinated or the percentage of people we have being vaccinated is the, the number of hospitalizations and the number of deaths aren't close to what they were like a, a year ago. So that that's that's the good news, because even if somebody who is vaccinated gets this, Again, if you're a breakthrough case, you're probably not going to get extremely sick. There are exceptions, I know. But in general, you're less you're you're not likely to get it if you have been vaccinated. And if you get it, the chances are the symptoms are going to be mild. But we're going to have to live with this. And the question in my mind is, what does that mean? All right. Dane County, Dane County. And of course, Dane County is the home to pretty much every kind of left wing idea that you can possibly imagine. Dane County is the place, as we talked about yesterday, where we no longer refer to criminals in the Dane County Jail, we don't call them inmates. We call them residents because we don't want to hurt their self-esteem. We don't want to hurt their image. Um, we, we don't because we're afraid if we call them inmates or convicts, well, instead of just simply residents, well, it might it might hurt their feelings and might be psychologically damaging to them when they get out of, of, of the confinement. I mean, th- this is what passes for thinking in Dane County. Well, Dane County has now announced that starting tomorrow, the mask mandate is back. And this applies to vaccinated people. It applies to unvaccinated people. Dane County says that um, starting 12.01 a.m. Thursday morning, so that would be midnight plus one tonight, everyone age two and older in Dane County must wear a face covering or mask 
when in any enclosed space open to the public where other people, except for members of the person's own household or living unit, could be present. And public health officials are also saying, well, also, you know, we, we think that you should wear masks if you have people over to your house. But we're not going to order that. It's just anything open to the public. The mask mandate is, in fact, back. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. They are apparently considering something similar in Milwaukee. Will this fly? Will people tolerate this? Is this an unreasonable return to where we were a year ago that is not justified by the numbers? And will this ever end? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. Dane County says the mask mandate is back. What do you think about that? We discuss in a minute. This is Jeff Wagner on WGMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Dane County becoming, I believe, the first county in the state to reinstitute the mask mandates anywhere you any enclosed area in. Public, a public that's open to the public starting tomorrow or 12.01 a.m. this evening, you will have to wear a mask. I'm wondering, are people going to accept this? And then, of course, the larger question is, it is now looking like COVID is going to be with us for years. I, that's, that's just the reality. And the number of, of people contracting it are, are probably going to go up and down a little bit, but it's going to be with us for years. So is this the new normal? Will the population accept essentially wearing masks if not forever, don't want to over-exaggerate it, but for the next several years, any time you are inside, or at least to put it a better way, being required to wear masks. Nobody says that if you feel more comfortable going into a place wearing a mask, no, there's nobody that would stop you from doing that. But this is the government telling you that you must. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Vincent on the northwest side. Hi, Vincent. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. What do you think? You know, I, I think what Madison is doing, I, I think, is prudent. The fact is, uh, we see the number of uh, cases uh, being admitted into hospitals uh, starting to grow here in Wisconsin, and I don't think we want to end up like what's going on down in the South in Texas, Mississippi, and and Florida. The fact is, uh, they have so many cases in, in their hospitals that they can't even admit anybody. They have to transfer them to other states. So I don't think we want to get to that point here in Wisconsin. So I think as we see the numbers start to tick up, I think maybe we need to start to uh, ratchet in with with some uh, little more prevention. The mask uh, might be might be a, a, a little thing to do instead of having lock instead of closing down everything. The fact is that it's a little thing to do to just to wear a mask. Do you think that this is going to be the new norm for the next five or ten years? I, I, I think so. I, I think so. As, as long as individuals decide that they don't want to uh, uh, take the vaccine, which we see the individuals who are being uh, admitted to the hospitals, uh, the majority, about 90 percent of the individuals are, are people who haven't taken the vaccine. OK, so that so, the fact is these- and so I don't disagree with you, Vincent. So my question would be, 
why, if people are making the decision, which I think is a bad decision, not to get vaccinated, all right, at some point in time, don't people have to bear the consequences of those decisions? So if somebody's done everything right and somebody's, you know, gotten themselves vaccinated, understanding that there can be breakthrough cases, but those are still small, why should they have to wear masks? Because those individuals who haven't taken the vaccine are basically, uh, are basically uh, uh, threatening those individuals who have taken the vaccine. And those individuals are getting getting the, the, the COVID virus from those individuals. So so the fact is, why don't you do a little more prevention? The fact is, I have to wear a mask. I have to still uh, uh, have to do a couple of things, maybe uh, with uh, uh, washing my hands a little more or using sanitizer. There are certain things I do to, put, to prevent me from getting other yep. diseases in this country. And so, hey, if, 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 if other people won't want to be responsible, I have to be responsible for my life and my family has to be responsible for their lives. And so, yeah, you know, I have to protect myself from those individuals who don't want to who don't care about my life. So, well, yeah. I guess I mean, I guess the, the, the OK, but but see, the reason the, the reason that you would wear a mask is generally speaking, now it works a little bit the other way, but generally speaking, the reason you wear a mask is so if you are, if you're sick, you're not going to spread it to, to other people. So if, if you're vaccinated, right, your, your chances of having that breakthrough case, and it, it, it does exist, but it's 0.1%. So what you're doing is essentially you're wearing that mask to protect yourself in the unlike to not necessarily protect yourself because it, it's unlikely that you're going to be in that breakthrough situation. You're wearing it to protect you from transmitting that disease to somebody who's made the decision not to get vaccinated. I, I guess that and I kind of look at this and I, I wonder at what point in time th- does government go overboard and and, and where. Where do we reach the point where we say, okay, th- these are now individual choices. And if you want to make what I believe to be a, a bad choice to not get vaccinated, unless you've got some compelling medical reason not to, if you want to make that choice, at what point in time does it become your choice and your responsibility to live with the consequences? Now, for the people who are, in fact, vaccinated, you're, you're largely protected. Yes, I understand there's breakthrough cases, and I understand that now there's questions about whether the vaccine is going to be effective or continue to be effective seven or eight months after you've gotten the dose and maybe it's going to need to have more um, you're going to have to have the booster shot but at some point in time does government just need to step out of it and say okay this is going to be individual choices and yes you live with the consequences of your decision and if you make the decision that you're going to go out in public and not be masked and you're not going to be vaccinated. You are exposing yourself to the chance that you're going to get sick. Now, most of the people that get COVID, again, and I'm not downplaying this, most of the people that get COVID do, do not have bad outcomes. That, that's just the, the reality. This isn't like polio. But at the same time, that there are some people who get it that have very bad outcomes, which is all the more reason why it's incumbent on them to become vaccinated, isn't it, to protect themselves? 855-616-1620. We continue the conversation. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. See, here's the other thing about this this mask mandate. By going back, and if you're just tuning in, Dane County has now reinstituted their their mask mandate. By by doing this, you essentially 
disincentivize people to get the vaccine. And I, I think we should be encouraging people to get the vaccine. But what we're saying now is that even if you are fully vaccinated, sorry, you still need to put on the masks every time you are indoors because, well, we... we I mean, I think the the subtle message it sends is that the vaccines don't work. Now, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. But that's kind of the subtle message. But regardless, we're saying, okay, well, we're not going to treat you any differently if you're vaccinated or not vaccinated. So then where where is the where is the carrot? Where is the stick? How do you encourage people to get vaccinated if we agree that that's the way out of this? 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. One of our texters is saying um, the biggest mistake was getting letting the government get involved in the first place more people should have protested government intervention from the get-go and and again this this is part of the problem that that we have now where you have the inconsistent advice i mean which which makes you wonder do you know who's running the show you you have the cdc that just a few weeks ago said well we don't think you need booster shots now they're saying well okay now everybody needs to get booster shots and and you're saying okay, well where is the data well we've got some small study out of israel that suggests that um you know and it's at some point in time I think you get to the situation where you're going to have a, a backlash. Um, Jeff, I will not, here's a text, I will not accept masks anymore at all. Those who want to take the risk, um, that's fine on them. I will take on that risk. And so it goes on and says that he's not going to, you know, do that. And that this is, this is the situation that, that we now face. I think that people if you'd want to encourage people, for example, if the Dane County authorities want to come out and say, look, you know, we, we see our COVID numbers going up. And, and even if you are among the vaccinated, we would encourage you to wear masks in an inside situation because it gives that extra level of protection. That, that's, that's one thing. When you force it on people, you just simply get more resistance. And as I was saying earlier, I think the upshot of forcing this on people is to say that even if you've done everything right, we're still going to treat you like you're unvaccinated. And the subtle message to that is, well, maybe these vaccinations aren't all they're cracked up to be. And that is not the message that I think anybody wants to um, send. It's kind of like with the COVID boosters. I, I think that rather than just doing this flip-flop over a matter of weeks, if they want to encourage the COVID boosters, well, first of all, they should wait till they've got a number of peer-reviewed studies. And then you come out and you say, okay, th- these are... These are the numbers that that we have seen, and this is what we're seeing, you know, eight months after the vaccination, and we're seeing that a huge increase in the number of breakthrough infections and whatever those numbers would be. But just to kind of bounce around where you don't have the data, all that does to me is suggest that, again, it makes it more difficult for some people to trust public health officials and wonder if they really know what they're talking about. In the meantime... Again, I believe everybody should get vaccinated. Back for more, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Again, one of the premises of the last half hour, and I I don't take any pleasure in saying it, but that that COVID is going to be with us for years. And I, I think... You know, and I'm getting these emails. Well, people don't understand the vaccines. It, it means you can, nobody says you can't get sick. Well, the, the bottom line with the vaccine, it's kind of like the flu. You get the flu shot. That doesn't mean you're not going to get the flu. 
Now, hopefully you won't, but you get it, and hopefully that means that, that the symptoms are going to be less. But yes, it, it's true. COVID is a virus. The virus mutates, and my guess is that after after we get past the Delta variant, there's going to be the Lambda, and there's going to be the Gamma. This this is going to be the new normal. So the question is, how do we end up reacting to it? Do we recognize that, especially once people get vaccinated, the chances of being hospitalized and being seriously ill aren't that great? We, you know, we, we can't stop people from getting the flu. We can't stop getting people from co- getting common colds. And I understand that this isn't the flu. I've gotten that for the last year or so. But on the other hand, if you are vaccinated, your chances of having for most people, having some really, really bad reaction are not statistically great at all. Now, you might be, again, that, that one in a million, but th- there's only so much we can do. We're, we're going to have to figure out a way to live with, with COVID. One of the things that we have to figure out is what does it do for the workplace? Now, if you have, there are some jobs where you got to go to work. You, you just you do not have a choice. If you if you are an HVAC repair person, you know, you're 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 on the road. You're going into people's homes. There, there's no choice. If you are if you work, um, if you're a roofer, OK, you're 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 on the road. You're that's how you make a living. You you aren't in the office. You're up on the roof. You're, you're working. If you work in a retail establishment, well, you have to interact with people. You have to go in and physically do it. If you're a, a barber or, you know, you're a hairdresser, or a hair salon or whatever, that, that's how you make your living. You have people coming in. You, you have to interact with people. You don't have a choice. On the other hand. There's a lot of office workers who their job doesn't depend on daily interaction with, with, with other people. I mean, you, you can do it through Zoom meetings. You can do stuff over the telephone. You can sit there. If, if you code um, hospital records, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're sitting at a desk in, in a particular business setting or whether you're sitting at your kitchen table at home. You know, you're, you're just entering data into the, the, the computer system. You can do this from anywhere. Now, a number of companies companies launched into the idea that they wanted to, they allowed people to work at at home in the beginning of the pandemic. But now as as vaccines became more prevalent, as the COVID numbers started to go down, what they decided is they wanted to start to bring their employees back because many businesses will say that they believe that employees are Overall, I'm not talking about you if you're working at home necessarily, but they'll tell you that they believe that in general, having people together where they can be supervised on a constant basis, that people tend to be more productive. But what's been happening is lately, a lot of companies have decided that they are, they're, they're, they're not bringing people back. Um, McDonald's, NBC, Capital One. You know, all all had plans for bringing people back into off the office. They they've scrapped them. You know, locally there's a number of you know large employers in Milwaukee who've essentially not had workers required to come in for over a year. And the idea was by by early fall, hey, we're going to get back to more normal situations and we're going to have people coming in most of the time. And now a number of those businesses have scrapped those plans for the fall. It is entirely possible at some big Milwaukee corporations that that, you know, you probably you can probably have gone a year and a half 
without having to actually go into the office with no end to that at all. So the question becomes, all right, there's a lot of people that love working remotely. That that's they, they figure they do it well. They're also uh, they've gotten used to not having to go into the office. So let's tee this up. All right, I mean, should remote work be a permanent benefit? Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If people have been successfully working from home remotely for the over the course of the last year and a half, and given the fact that COVID, my premise, is that COVID is going to be with us, for years. Maybe not the Delta variant, but once we get a handle on the Delta variant, there's going to be the Lambda variant. I, I can pretty much guarantee it. So the, the numbers of you know, hospitalizations and people catching this, it, it's going to fluctuate. It's, it's going to go up and down, but it's not going to go away. So from the perspective of office workers, you know, for people who are uncomfortable with coming in or people who have already proven that they can do it because they've been working at home, all right, are offices going to be able to get away with requiring people to come back? 855-616-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And I have to tell you, I, I think in many request, respects, that, that, that genie is now out of the bottle. A- and employers, by giving people the ability to work remotely because of concerns about COVID, well, if my premise is right that we're going to have COVID for years, I don't see how employers can now turn around and say we're going to bring you back, vaccinated or not, because in many places it doesn't matter whether you're vaccinated or not. You're still given the option of being able to work at home if you feel uncomfortable. 855-616-1620. I think in ways that maybe I didn't understand at first, that this is a dramatic change in offices because as a practical matter at least for the foreseeable future i don't see how offices can who have allowed people to work remotely over the course of the last year year and a half i don't see how they can require people to come back because COVID isn't going away anytime soon what do you think 855-616-1620 and if you are one of those workers who has been working remotely what do you think about that are you glad that, you know, that option is going to continue to be afforded you because I, I think that's inevitable. 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss in a minute. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. Before we go to the calls, here's a text. Jeff, the battle for talent is extreme right now. Feel free to require an employee to report to the office if you'd like. But if their job can be done from home, expect them to find a place that does allow remote work. My wife just took a new job with a company out of Texas. It's 100% remote. Her current employer is a five-minute drive from home. Um, yeah, I, I think there there's an element to that. Jeff, we've been at home for 17 months now. Um, you know, we've proven that we can do it. The stats are good. Um, they offered the hybrid option so people would go into the office on an emer- for an emergency or for a meeting was called. Otherwise, we're all at home for the time being, and we absolutely love it. And I think there's an element of that that's going on as well. 855-616-1620. And, and I mean, th- this, this is kind of... See, I think this is the way of the future because if you've if you've already gone down this route and said that because of COVID we're going to allow employees to work from home, well, if I'm right, 
that COVID isn't going to go away. Now, the numbers might go up, the numbers might go down a little bit, but but how do you get a workforce back full time if the justification was, okay, we're, we're going to shut down because we're concerned about safety, but now, you know, we're going to bring you back? I mean, or you get into this idea of, hey, we're bringing you back, and then two weeks later, oh, we've seen these new numbers and they're going up again, so now we're going to send you back. To me, that doesn't make any sense. I think this is... I think you're looking at the new normal here. Peggy in Menominee Falls. Peggy, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Um, Hi, I have a, I have, a, I think it's a good idea for the person that can work from home, also the employer. I'm also wondering about the liability as far as getting injured at work. If you get injured at home while on the job, is that still a workers' comp thing considered? I would guess not because it's your house. But the other thing I have that I'm questioning too is, is are you going to get the quality service from someone working at home as you would them being in the workplace? I myself called our HR department uh, from a local area hospital where I work. And the person had her kids in the background. They were making so much noise. She had to get off the phone, go and take care of them, tell I'll be back in a minute. And then she comes back, and I could hear them again. Uh, to me, that was very distracting for me as, as a caller. Yeah. And I don't think that was right. You have to have a designated workplace where you're not going to be disturbed. No, no, I, I thank you. I mean, I, right, there, there's all these parameters of that. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. But you actually hit one of the reasons I suspect that there's some employees who love the whole idea of working from home because, hey, our, our child care problem has just gone out of the way. You know, we don't have to take the kids to daycare. You know, dad's home or, or mom's home. Jeff, uh, my granddaughter, who's in her early 20s, works for a major health care provider for the past five years in a support role. When COVID began, her office and all the staff were sent home to work until further notice. In January of this year, they made her job a permanent work-from-home job. Um, she believes that she gets more done at, at home. 855-616-1620. Pamela in Delavan, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. What do you think? Well, I work for a healthcare system, and um, my job was one that was uh, mandated to go um, remote when the co- when the COVID pandemic started. Right. And we, you know, I made a, an office at home and everything, but I was not allowed to go back on site for any reason. Right. Um, and I support the staff, um, not necessarily. Um, I don't have direct patient contact. Right. Now they've changed it where at least it's a hybrid. And so we have a spot that we can go. They call it hoteling where you don't have a desk anymore. You just have, um, you know, a desk that you can use. Yeah, space. Yeah. You meet with people if you need to and then and then go back home and work. Okay. How do you – so as a practical matter, in a, in a given – two-week period of time, how, how many days do you anticipate that you would actually physically have to go into work? I try to do one day a week. Okay. Okay. How is that working out? Do you, do you, do you like going in the one day, or would you just, would you just prefer, hey, I, I wish it was just permanently, you know, being able to stay at home? No, I like having the opportunity to, there's um, sometimes I need to meet with a new employee and it's just sometimes easier to meet with a doctor to go on site and do that. And so you can kind of combine all those on, you know, I'll be there on Monday or I'll be there on Tuesday. You get all those things done. And then the rest of my workload I can do at home. Yeah. Now, I I think, you know, Pamela, I think the... um 
I think that hybrid model is going to become more and more sort of the, the norm, giving people the option to come in on a limited basis or an as-needed basis, but yet letting them work at home. And and my guess is you, you love that option, right? You love the way it's set up now? I, I do. I didn't like having, like, you can't come on site for any reason um, because sometimes there were just things you needed to speak with people about. But then I don't have an office anymore. I don't have an office right. and a desk. I have, we have what's called hoteling spots right. that are just right. empty workspaces that if I'm going in for the day, that's where I work. Got it. No, interesting. Hoteling. I like it. Here's a text. Jeff, I'm a medical coder who works from home. I was doing three to four days from home before COVID, and now I'm full-time at home. Speaking for my group, we can do everything from home successfully. We have no issues whatsoever communicating through email and by phone. I do enjoy it, although uh, being around a four and a two year old twenty four seven can be somewhat trying at times. Well, I mean that's the that's the issue that's there. Let's talk to uh, Bill in Wauwatosa. Bill, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Bill. Um, yeah, I just wanted to uh, to say that uh, I kind of agree with the last caller. What you were just saying, um, uh, hybrid model. You know, I work for a large employer here in the Wauwatosa, Milwaukee area, and. Uh, originally, we went to a full work from home um, when the pandemic initially hit. And then for about um, uh, six weeks there, we were doing a hybrid. And now they've uh, brought us all back full time. Um, you know, during that hybrid time, you know, I felt like I never had to choose between uh, work and life. Um, you know, for example, I, I constantly think about this uh, uh, early, in, early in the beginning of the summer. I had a wedding to go up to in the Minneapolis area, um, had to be there for a rehearsal dinner. Um, was able to travel um, out of Milwaukee Thursday night, go mm-hmm. work from the hotel Friday, and then I was able to get to the dinner relaxed right. and ready to go, you know, Friday night. Versus if if we were, you know, in the office full time, I would have to take a day of PTO right. to go up there for that Friday just for travel. So, in, in my in my opinion, it helps the it helps me as an um, employee because I don't have to be stressed, and then it helps the company as well because I don't have to take a day of PTO and I'm actually getting, you know, I'm, I'm working, I'm being productive. So. Um, that's what I would like to, you know, kind of see happen, uh, moving forward here. You know, thanks. So, well, I, I think you're, I think you're on to something. I mean, I do, I do. And again, look, I, I understand there's some people listening and they're yelling at the radio saying, well, my job, I, you know, I, I have to be on site. I, I you know, and I, and I get it. There's a lot of jobs that you just, you physically have to be there. If you're, if your job is you're, you're the cashier at a grocery store, well, yeah, you're not going to be able to do that remotely. But, but there's all sorts of other jobs where you can do this. Here's a text, Jeff. I just took a new job as CEO of a 24-person company, and we are 100% remote. We have an office for those who want it, but um, when we discussed uh, during the, the, the hiring by the founder and the largest investor, they said they're 100% committed to remote work for our team. I, I think you're going to see more and more of that. I think more and more employees are going to be demanding that as well because it's Look, and I think there's all sorts of benefits, for example, from the employer for this as well, including the fact that maybe you don't need as much office space. If you've got three floors in a downtown office building, um, maybe you, you don't need all three floors. Maybe you need one floor so you can do what was the word hoteling, you know, so so people can come in. Look, I, I just I think this is is the change. And I, I'm not sure I would have said that six months ago or a year ago. But but this is the reality. And especially if my premise is right, that COVID isn't going away.
And again, I COVID isn't going away. That's one of the conclusions. We're going to be getting booster shots. We're going to be seeing the numbers go up and down over the next several years. So once we've made this commitment to let people work at home, well, how do you start bringing people back to the office? You're going to be on this yo-yo. Okay, well, this week you're in, next week you're out. I, I think the future is much more remote work at a lot of companies um, unless they can demonstrate that it clearly doesn't work for that company. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. I hope people realize what, what a special time this is for Wisconsin sports fans. Of course, you, you have the, the Bucks that for the first time in 50 years win the NBA championship. The Brewers... They're in the middle of a really special season. I told the story earlier. Last night after our, our, the, the golf outing stuff, I, I, I went out and I, we, I play, we played this trivia contest that we ended up winning. Kind of proud of that. And I got home in time to watch like the last three innings or so of the game. St. Louis is a very, very good team. Brewers won two to nothing and it was a really good game and there were like high stress innings and stuff. St. Louis, not a bad team at all. And they're starting to make a, a push to try to get one of the wild card spots um and they're you know they're 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 so they've got something to play for there, there's no question about it but it was just it was a really good game it was a well-pitched game it was a tight game it was a fun game to watch if you're a baseball fan and the brewers ended up winning but here here's the deal from a numbers perspective right now the brewers are 73 and 47 which is well essentially statistically they're kind of they're 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 one game behind Los Angeles for the second best record in the National League. San Francisco has the best record. But to, to give you a historical perspective, okay, keep this in mind, 73 and 47. The In all the years the Brewers have played baseball, the most wins the team has ever had in a given year, and they did it twice, 2011 and 2018, was 96 wins. Now, that, that that's an amazing season. They've got 90, but 96 wins. That's the, the most wins that any team, any Brewers team has ever had. Well, they're 73 and 47. So let's put this in perspective. To get 96 wins... The Brewers, all they really have to do is play slightly above 500 baseball. 23 and 19 gets them to 96 wins. 27 and 15, um, that gets them to 100 wins. And, and 100 wins, and I, look, I, I also understand that baseball is where we want to win the World Series and things like that. But for, for a regular season, I mean, 100 wins is is a sign of, of greatness in a team. And the Brewers are certainly, certainly within, you know, shouting distance of that. I bring this up only because it, it's a really special time. So you're the Bucks that won the NBA championship. You've got the Brewers that are clearly, from a record perspective, one of the best teams in, in baseball. I'm not saying that they're the best. But they're one of the best teams, and I, I think you know you can make a strong argument about how they, they've got the ability. If everything falls right, just like it fell right for the Bucks to, to go pretty far, maybe this is the year they get back to the World Series. Maybe this is the year they finally win it. And then, of course, you've got football season starting, and the Green Bay Packers are one of the top teams in the NFL. We don't know how it's all going to shake out, but you know it is it is possible that we could have in Wisconsin this year, 2021, and into, I mean, I know the Super Bowl is next February. You, you could have, you could have Wisconsin or Milwaukee sports teams in general, you know, being, 
a couple of different world championships, and that does not happen very often. Extremely, extremely positive. All right. Uh, Fox 6 locally had a very, very interesting piece the other day, and, and I want to give them credit because they are one of the few media outlets in this city that have just not completely and totally gone into the tank and drank the, the streetcar Kool-Aid. Right, it's that the, the newspapers' coverage of this has been appalling from the beginning because the newspapers, I always, we 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 shouldn't care. Let let's let's build Tom's trolley folly, and and, and we're not going to look critically at this at all. And other media outlets have been like that as well. Well, Fox Six hasn't. Fox Six, matter of fact, I, I love it. A couple months ago, they went out and and they actually stationed a reporter, you know, at, at one of the the trolley car outlets, and and they counted the number of, of people that were on the on the on the on the trolley, and. and and nobody and nobody was riding it. It was like one after another. It was just kind of like the air trolley, and, and that's it. Well, okay, here here is the deal. And my question is, I, I want to remove this from the, the sort of knee-jerk reaction of, yeah, I hate the trolley, or yes, I love the trolley. But I want to talk about it from the perspective of, of, of opportunity cost. And, and let me explain what that means. There, you could say... Gee, this would be really great. I'd love to go to Disney World with my family. But a vacation at Disney World, by the time I get everybody down there and get all the tickets and stay, you know, it, it, it would cost $10,000. I'm just pulling a number out of the air. And, and I'd love to have that. But but there's that, that $10,000 it would cost me to go to Disney World. Well, we're behind in the mortgage, and I've got a huge credit card payment that's coming, and the car needs work. And, and so I, I can't justify spending that $10,000. As much as I'd love to go to Disney World, I can't justify spending that because there's all sorts of other things that I could be doing with that money that big picture are, are more important. All right, so so that's that's the idea. Well, okay, the latest scheme that, that Tom Barrett has, and, and Fox 6, they, they found the documents behind this. Now, to build the initial trolley line, the, the 2.1 um, miles that essentially runs from the bus depot up to the lower east side. So really what it is, it's a, an opportunity to... I don't know, take, uh, if, if you're uh, an east side yuppie and you want to walk a couple blocks and bar hop, okay, you can do that. The initial cost of doing that was $128 million. $128 million, a good chunk of which came from, from the federal government. But now the problem is, we were originally told that, okay, the trolley is going to be semi-self-sufficient. We're going to charge, you know, money for people to ride it. Well, that was a lie. I don't think that there was ever an intention to charge people because they wouldn't have been able to get it through. The, if the, the, the estimates they had on ridership, they said, well, if, if people pay a dollar to ride this, we're going to have X number of people ride a day. Well, what they fully now admit is that if you charged people a quarter to ride it, much less a dollar, the numbers would drop dramatically. And and it's the numbers, it's almost impossible to say that because they've, they've really got, you almost think that they've got nowhere to go but, but up. Um, in June, the number of people who rode it, now this is in the midst of the Bucks NBA um, run. In June of 2021, um, 
922 riders per day. 922 riders per day, even with all that stuff going on at Fiserv. I mean, it, it's just, it, these are air trolleys. People are, are not riding them. And what's happening now is the, the taxpayers are going to have to come up with, to subsidize the hop, the trolley. It's about $4.5 million a year. Now, they get some revenue from advertising, but but essentially the taxpayers of Milwaukee are on the hook for a couple million dollars a year that could be spent on other things that are going to have to be used to subsidize the hop. That's just the reality. But, okay, you've got that. So the latest plan is they want to expand the hop uh, about another six miles. They want to run it south through the Third Ward to like 6th and National, and they want to run it north to to Bronzeville. That, that's, that's kind of the idea. It, it's six miles. The numbers, apparently, and this is what Fox 6 found, that they've discovered a, a quote-unquote secret memo that, that hadn't been made public to build this extension would cost, and I hope you're sitting down, would cost $330 million. $330 million. This is on top of the, the $128 million that the initial thing cost. So $330 million. The city estimates that it, it, to get this $330 million, they, they'd have to go to the federal government. Um, the hope would be that the federal government would come up and pay for $260 million, and the city would have to pay $70 million. $70 million. They also estimate that if you expanded the system, it would cost the city an additional $6.9 million a year to operate and maintain. And that's on top of the, the four and a half million that it already costs. So you would be looking at about $11 million a year, $70 million up front to, to build the thing. And then, of course, that's not even including that the federal taxpayer dollars of, of $270 million, all to expand a streetcar that nobody's riding. Okay, our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I'm sorry, but stories like this make my, my head want to explode. Regardless about how you feel about the, the novelty of a streetcar or Tom's Trolley Folly or whatever, think about all the things you could do in Milwaukee for $330 million. And... and Okay, even let's take out the federal money, if, if, if federal money doesn't count. I mean, think about all the things that you could do with $70 million plus the extra six, seven, eight million that you're going to have to come up with for every year to operate this thing. And when you think about it in those terms, how can anybody in their right mind suggest that the streetcar expansion would be the best use of those dollars? How could anybody suggest that it would be the top 10 use of those dollars? How can anybody suggest that of the top 100 ways that you could spend $70 million up front and then nine, six million or whatever it is, a year, how could anybody suggest it would be in the top 100 of those uses? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I just, 
even if you like the streetcar and think, oh, this would be kind of fun and I, I'd, I'd like to ride it around a little bit, think of what you could do with these tens of millions of dollars. Think what you could do to improve public transit. I mean, buses and things like that. Think what you could do for road improvements. Think about all the stuff you could do and how could anybody justify using that money to extend a streetcar line that nobody is riding. 855-616-1620, we discuss. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. These are numbers. Apparently nobody, in, in, at least in Milwaukee government, wanted you to hear. The, the estimate for this, this latest expansion of the trolley that they're, they're trying to orchestrate $330 million, $330 million, and then an extra $6.9 million per year to operate it. Now, right now, there, there's figuratively, there, there's nobody riding this thing. And, and, and my point is, if you've got $330 million sitting around for a lot of it's federal money, but that's still taxpayer money. And then $70 million of would be coming from the city itself, plus another six or seven a year to, to run the thing. Is that really the best way to spend this money? And who in their right mind would think that? Let's talk to Ron and Rubicon. Ron, you're on WTMJ. How you doing, Jeff? Real well, thanks. What do you think? I think they use the money for hiring some police and some social workers for the people that want to defund the police, and everybody in the city is happy. <laughs> yeah. Well, 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 right. Think of – thanks for the call. I mean, think of – all right, think of what we could do. Think of what we could do if we took $15 million of that $70 million that the taxpayers are going to have to come up with, and, and we hired cops. I mean, I, I love the point. Um, let me just share some texts because we're getting a lot of them. Jeff, well, first of all, it, a lot of it's federal money. Um like that's not ours anywhere. I mean, you know, that, well, that's exactly what I think some people think that it's 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 federal money. You know, you know who who cares about this? But but still, it's it's not just federal money. That's the situation Milwaukee finds itself in. They're having to tap parking revenues to to pay for the failure that is the hop now. And what we've done is we we want to double, we want to triple, we want to quadruple down on this whole thing. Just you know, incredibly, Jeff, use the money for more police officers or body cameras for the police. Jeff, the number one issue in Milwaukee is crime. These funds will not help. These funds could only help cover the budget shortfall for MPD. Well, yeah, you've you've got that that's there as well. A number of people are making the point that it would be cheaper to have limousines take everyone around town. Well, yes, there or, or buy people cars. You know, that's it. Now, a number of people on the text line are, are making the point that's absolutely correct. If you want to move people around and you want to do it at a fraction of the cost for the hop, well, what what you would do is you would buy more rubber tire trolleys or you would, you would put it into buses that you then had the flexibility that you would say, okay, you know, the Bucks are in the NBA finals and there's all sorts of activity going on in the Deer District and you've got all sorts of people that are wanting to go to the Deer District. No problem. Let's roll a half dozen of these brand spanking new electric trolleys or these buses that we bought out and, and let's let's run them 
Let, let's run like specialty things to take you down to the deer district so you can get close. That, that would be a, a great use. You could do it at a fraction of the cost of these fixed lines and you could adjust it. Summerfest is going on. Great. Add some of these trolleys or buses or whatever, the rubber tire trolleys to take people down to the lakefront when people are there. But in January, when nobody is going down to the lakefront, you don't have the, the fixed thing. Same thing true with, with the deer district. You've got something big going going on, the, there's a big concert or the, the the Bucks are playing and there's all this activity, great. You know, okay, you, you add a couple buses and they go up and they drop people off. But when it's an August day and there's nothing at all going on in the Deer District, why, why are you running trolleys back and forth and through it? It makes absolutely no sense. Regardless of how you feel about the streetcar, these numbers should be incredibly alarming. And look, and there's no question that the taxpayers of Milwaukee, the people of the state, we were lied to in the beginning. And and I I, I believe I, I believe there's no question that's what happened. The, these different consultants that came out and came up with these estimates, oh, we're gonna have this kind of ridership, they were either grossly incompetent or in fact they were intentionally deceptive because they wanted to get this particular result because the numbers they threw out were always pie in the sky numbers and they were we were told they were based on people paying well people have never paid and i understand there were some months that exceeded those numbers but that was when it was free and I think everybody would tell you if you charged, like I said earlier, even a quarter, the numbers would drop even lower than they are. All I'm saying is I understand it's Milwaukee. I understand that we're not responsible with money. I understand that we throw millions of dollars around, you know, willy-nilly and then wonder why stuff doesn't work. But you look at the cost of what this streetcar expansion is talking about, and, and at some point in time, doesn't somebody have to say, we've got all these financial problems in, in this city, and you know maybe now is not the time for Tom Barrett and members of the Common Council to be taking an expensive trip down to Disney World, and I use that as the parallel for what that extension of the hop would be. Maybe we need to concentrate on the significant infrastructure things that really would improve the quality of people's lives. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Okay, we have our winner of the four tickets to Summerfest. Keep listening um, Thursday and Friday. I have more four packs to give away. And for everybody who sends me a text saying, we're not going to go to Summerfest because they're going to make us prove that we're vaccinated or have a negative COVID test, I, I say, well, I respect that. But I there, trust me, there's a lot of people who, who still want to go to Summerfest and are willing to do that. I am intrigued by how you are going to respond to this question. I am... Um, when I was in law school, I had a, had a professor. His name is Jim Giardi. Jim was legendary um, in the Milwaukee legal community. He was a legendary educator, just a great litigator. And and Jim always used to say, "Every anybody can sue anybody for for anything, but one of the first questions you have to ask is is can you collect money? Because there, there's some people that even if if you sue them." 
they are, well, the term would be judgment-proof. You know, you, you can sue them, you can get a judgment for $5 million, but it doesn't matter because they don't have a pot to you-know-what in. And so, yeah, you, you can wave around this $5 million. I've got a $5 million judgment, but if they if they don't have anything, you're, you're not going to be able to, to collect on that. And that's why... What happens a number of times is there, there's this game that develops, and I, I say I say game, but it, it's it's an idea where you have lawyers who say, "All right, look, we we think we've got a cause of action, and, and we want to sue somebody, but we know that the person we would sue is is uncollectible, so we have to find someone else to sue that that might." you know, might have money. It's where sometimes you get some of these like product liability cases where what what happens is somebody does something really stupid, you know, with a a particular product and you're on one hand, you know, and then somebody else gets hurt. And the person says, okay, well, I want to sue the person who did something really, really stupid with this product, but they don't have any money. So even if I get a judgment, I'm not going to be able to collect. So here, I'm going to try to go after the manufacturer. I'm going to try to say that they did something wrong as well because the manufacturer has, has money. All right, which brings us to the story. I believe it was from yesterday. Maybe it was from Monday. Kyle Rittenhouse. Kyle Rittenhouse is the then 17-year-old young man who showed up in Kenosha last August on the third night of the riots in Kenosha. And he's the guy that was there. He had the, the, the rifle, and he ended up shooting three people. Right. Okay. That that's Rittenhouse. We all know this. Uh, Rittenhouse is going to be going to trial sometime later this year. That that I, I've I've been carrying on about this before. It's amazing to me that they they've been able to put this trial off for for over a year. But but that is the case. Um, it's going to be on Court TV, as a matter of fact. Um, so the Rittenhouse it's going to be getting a, the the full kind of attention and. We will, as it gets closer to the trial, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it. And I understand that the Kyle Rittenhouse prosecution, people feel very, very passionate about this case. There's some people who think this kid was a murderer who went to, you know, Kenosha with the idea of trying to, you know, kill protesters. Um, there's other people who think that Kyle Rittenhouse was, in fact, the victim, and he was just defending himself when, you know, he was attacked by people. It, that'll all sort out in, in the trial. But the truth of the matter is, one way or the other, Kyle Rittenhouse is is pretty much judgment-proof. It, it's he's, he's a kid who really, he has no money. You know, yes, they, they took up collections for his legal defense and stuff, but you, you could, if you sued Kyle Rittenhouse, so let's say the, the people who were shot by Kyle Rittenhouse, and they want to bring, they want to bring an action against him. They want to file a lawsuit against him. Well, you can sue Kyle Rittenhouse, and you can say, okay, the surviving family members of somebody who was killed, they can sue Kyle Rittenhouse, and they can say, well, you know, Rittenhouse took his life, you know, and so we should be entitled, let's bring a wrongful death suit. Well, th- that's fine. Assuming for the sake of argument that you could win that, even if you win it, you know, you get a judgment against Kyle Rittenhouse for $2 million. Kyle Rittenhouse doesn't have $2 million, and he's never going to have $2 million. That's just kind of the reality. So you start to figure out, okay, what other lawsuits can I bring? Which brings me to um, the story. This is the way the Journal Sentinel reports it. The estate of a man fatally shot by Kyle Rittenhouse during protests in Kenosha last year is blaming authorities for allowing the situation to evolve to its deadly conclusion 
Um, and then it talks about Anthony Huber, 26, had struck Rittenhouse with a skateboard just before Rittenhouse fatally shot him um, in the road. A federal lawsuit filed yesterday calls Huber, that's the guy with the skateboard, a hero who was trying to disarm Rittenhouse after he had already killed a man about a block away. But the suit isn't against Rittenhouse. It names the city and county of Kenosha, the sheriff, the acting and former police chiefs, and unnamed officers and deputies. It accuses them of racial animus in allowing dozens of armed white people to remain among the protesters, leading to the conditions that resulted in Rittenhouse's death. Um, So essentially, and then uh, the the lawsuit essentially alleges that... um, the law enforcement is ultimately responsible for what happened that night because they, they didn't they didn't stop the people who showed up to provide quote unquote security on the third night of the riots. The lawsuit accuses the defendants of inviting, deputizing, conspiring with, and ratifying the actions of the armed men, all as part, according to the complaint, of a systematic pattern and practice of racism within the department. It alleges law enforcement knew that a Facebook call to arms by a former Kenosha alderman had some 3,000 responses, and rather than try to dissuade attendants, it essentially welcomed their health. Okay, uh, help. Okay, our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. So we're not suing this lawsuit, at least the purpose of it, isn't being brought against Rittenhouse, because Rittenhouse has no money. It's suing Kenosha, saying that the Kenosha authorities, the police, the political structure, didn't do enough to, I don't know, protect the protesters slash rioters and created the conditions that led to what happened. What do you think about that? 855-616-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I don't really think much. We'll discuss. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Here's a text. Jeff, I lived in Kenosha. Um, okay, no, let's see. Where's the text that I want to find here? Um, Jeff, if where where does this all play out? What about my friends who owned buildings in Kenosha that got burned the first two nights of the riots? Should they be able to sue the Kenosha police for not doing an adequate job of backing of of supporting that? And see, and that's that's the underlying question with this. If this was a lawsuit that was being brought against Kyle Rittenhouse, saying, "Okay, he, he caused the the wrongful death of the the person he shot," well, okay, I get it because Kyle Rittenhouse is the one that shot him. And then 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 you have the lawsuit, and then a jury decides whether it was a wrongful death thing or not. That would be the typical thing. But what what's scary about these lawsuits is it's this effort to try to impose liability in this particular situation on, on government. On, on government actors, on the police. You've got a chaotic scene that's been going on for four days. So I guess my question is, where do you end up drawing the line on something like this? What if it's a situation where you have a police officer, a Milwaukee police officer, for example, who, who sees a car driving past them 
I don't know, driving 35 in a 25-mile-an-hour zone. And because we have nothing but reckless driving that goes on and the police are really busy, you know, pull them over. You, you could have pulled them over. You could have stopped them. And if you, in my example, if you would have stopped them, you would have found that the driver didn't have a license. Okay? All right. But you don't. The, the cop doesn't stop them. Just lets the guy go because, I don't know, there's all sorts of other things going on. And then an hour later... Turns out that the person who could have been pulled over an hour ago blows through a red light at, I don't know, 100 miles an hour and hits and kills somebody. Should you be able to sue the, the city of Milwaukee Police Department and the, the Milwaukee government for for not pulling the person over and stopping that person from committing the subsequent crime? That, to me, is and I think most people would say that the answer is is no. If you want to bring a lawsuit and you want to allege that, hey, this was a wrongful death thing, okay, no no problem with that, but you sue the person who really caused this this issue. Here's a text, Jeff, why aren't people suing Black Lives Matter for inciting the riot in the first place, which then you know, led to the people coming to Kenosha on the third night to try to protect businesses from being burned down. Well, I, that is the question. At what point in time is there a logical stopping point for this? And how, at what, when do you say to the police, well, gee, you know, we, you, you let this get out of control. And look, I, I was very, critical in my own way of, of what happened those first two nights in particular in Kenosha, that the police were overwhelmed. The protesters slash rioters outnumbered the police, and the police ended up in a very, very defensive position, and there's a lot of blame to go around for that, and things got completely and totally out of control. But, you know, I don't see the, the building owners bringing lawsuits against the police for failing to, you know, contain the rioters. If you want to bring lawsuits, you bring against the people that burned down the house. My argument would be the same thing here. If the family, the estate of the man who was shot that night, believes that that was a wrongful death, well, then what you do is you sue the person who was responsible for that wrongful death, and this would be... Again, Kyle Rittenhouse. You don't try to you know, bring in the, the, the criminal justice system in general, because if you do, where do you drop? Where do you draw the line? Because you could make a strong argument that the victim of, of any sort of crime, for example, in Milwaukee, should be able to sue. You know, we, we turn a blind eye to car theft. Okay, so we we take car thieves and we, we, we just let them out, especially if they're juveniles. We don't prosecute them. We let them out. We let them out. We let them out. We send them home to their, their parents. They go out. They steal more cars. So if one of those car thieves blows through a red light and hits and kills somebody while they're fleeing from the police, do we sue the court system? Should we be able to sue the court system? And the answer has always been no, but maybe that's going to change. Now, I, I think I think this lawsuit, in my opinion – Courts will decide, but I think it's probably a bridge too far. Will be interesting to see because there's a lot of people who think that the Kyle Rittenhouse case is a dead bang winner on either side. There's some people who are positive. There's no way he's going to be convicted. Other people who are positive, well, sure he's going to get convicted. I don't know. I think this is going to be a closer and much more difficult decision on either side than many people think. Time will tell. We call this the Milwaukee way. 
You know, you've got a record number of car thefts. For example, it's, it's still it's around twenty seven cars a, a day being stolen. It's just it's just a staggering number. And rather than, of course, confront the underlying problem, which you have a lawless element of society that's out there who have no regard for things that belong to other people who are stealing cars. And in many cases, it's really it's actually a relatively small number of people who do it over and over and over again. And we refuse to hold them accountable because, well, that might upset somebody or you might have some vocal politician who gets upset that, gee, too many of this type of person or that type of person is getting arrested for stealing cars. And so what do we do? We send a letter to the car manufacturers blaming them. Hey, your cars are too easy to steal. And and again, I, I have no issue with if, if car manufacturers want to put in additional safety things that make their cars more difficult to steal. But that's not the problem. I mean, the problem is that you have a bunch of thugs and criminals that are running around Milwaukee with impunity, stealing anything that they can find. And, and, and yeah, you can make it more difficult to, to, to steal the cars, and that's all well and good. But all that's going to do is get the thugs and the car thieves to figure out more ways to, to, to rip them off. I mean, the, the answer is you've got to get the car thieves off the street. But that's not the Milwaukee way. That's not how we approach things. It's blame somebody else. And there's another classic example of that. So last week, the census numbers came out. And the census numbers are important because the the, the amount of, of, for example, federal aid you get is tied into the size of your population. And the census numbers show that Milwaukee lost about 10% of its population since since 2000. So in the last 20 years, Milwaukee is down nearly 10%. The population of the city, 567,550. Um, that's, that's so 10% since 2000. Um, that's down about, about 3% from, from 2010. So, I mean, again, a, a drop. And so what, what is, Look, does anybody think that those numbers probably these are all approximations, right? But but does anybody think that that the city of Milwaukee has been hasn't been shrinking? Does anybody think that there's lots of people who have been when they've gotten the chance have been moving out and they haven't been replaced with a similar number of people of moving in? Does, does anybody seriously believe that's not the case? Well, okay, instead of recognizing that there is a quality of life issue that's causing people to leave the city and, you know, there, there can be many different factors because of that. But clearly people are leaving the city. More people are leaving it than coming in. So instead of recognizing there's a quality of life issue and trying to figure out how to deal with it, whether it's crime, whether it's education, whether it's employment or whatever, what's the what's the mayor's response to all this? The mayor's response is they're skeptical of, of the numbers and we're looking at the potential for appealing the, the count. You know, we're, we're, we're going to, we're going to fight the numbers that are out there instead of recognizing that maybe we've got a problem with quality of life here. It's the same thing. Let's ignore the car thieves. Let's just complain about the car manufacturers making the cars too easy to steal. We're going to complain about the count without recognizing that it's probably a problem with the quality of life issues because complaining about the count is easier, I guess, than dealing with issues like crime and employment and poor schools and the like. Go figure. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. 
And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Okay, this is the least surprising story of the day. Governor Tony Evers. This is shutdown Tony. This is mask requirement Tony. This is vaccine Tony. And by the way, I don't have a problem. I think people should be vaccinated. Governor Tony Evers says he backs local vaccine requirements for teachers. Teachers should be required to be vaccinated against COVID-19 when the schools reopen classrooms this fall, Evers said. He supports these mandatory vaccine things. And in as we talked about, I think it was yesterday, in Milwaukee, MPS is considering doing that. Now, there, there's a big asterisk that, that doesn't come along with the, these stories, and, and that is... To be practical, you can't have a vaccine mandate for, in my opinion, for, for teachers unless there's also an out clause, which is, is the testing requirement. And, and here's why. You, you can say, all right, if you're going to work at a public school, for example, you have to be vaccinated. Well, that, that's all well and good. But there is going to be a decent percentage of the employees who aren't going to get vaccinated. That, that's just the reality. Who will say, okay, you know, um, if MPS is going to require me to get vaccinated or else lose my job, you know what, I'll, I'll go do something else. I'll go teach in some other district where they don't have that requirement. And and the question that I have been asking rhetorically is, you know, what do you do? Let, let's take a struggling school district like MPS that can't find bodies anyway. They can't find enough teachers. They can't find enough, you know, aides. They can't find enough people working in the cafeterias. And, and you say, okay, we're going to impose a mandatory vaccination rule. And so you, you lose 20% of the workforce or, or 10% or 30%, whatever that number might be. You can't replace them. It, it's just... It is not practical to draw that kind of line in the sand. Now, you can give yourself an escape valve, and, and that's that's one of the interesting things that's there because the, the, the national teachers associations, they're all saying that they would support mandatory vaccinations. But, and, and this is the big but, the, the caveat is if you choose not to get vaccinated, then what you have to do is you have to go, you're going to be tested. You're going to be tested once a week or twice a week or whatever that is. If you have that escape valve in, it might be workable because then, you know, you have the people who say, okay, I'm not going to get vaccinated, but I still want to work here. So even though it is a nuisance and an inconvenience and it's uncomfortable, I, I'm going to get tested twice a week. All right. That, that, that might at least be practical as long as you keep that escape valve in. But if you take that escape valve out, if you say, no, boy, it, it's just, you know, forget about testing. You're going to lose your job unless you could prove that you've been vaccinated by September 15th or whatever. You, you're going to decimate the public school system because there will be a percentage. And you could argue these people are wrong or they're dumb or they should do it. But but there's going to be a percentage, probably a decent sized percentage of people who aren't going to do it. And you're not going to be able to fill those jobs. So, again, it's not practical without that escape valve, that alternative of saying if you don't get tested, you know, if you don't get vaccinated, you're going to have to be tested, which I think is is a reasonable I think that is a reasonable alternative. Like I say, I'm pro-vaccine, but I I think you can be pro-vaccine and anti-vaccine mandates 
caused by your by the the government or by your employer or whatever. And I think you know again, some people are just going to get vaccinated because it's the right thing to do. Others will get vaccinated because going through those tests twice a week are just so annoying. I, I know I've said this before over the last week. I think these healthcare systems that are saying, okay, we're, we're going to take away the testing option. It's either vaccinated or you're fired by October 15th or November 1st, I think they're playing a really dangerous game of chicken because they're going to lose 5, 10, 15, 20% of their workforce, don't know what the number is, and and who's who's going to be cooking the food for the patients in the hospital? If you lose 15% of your skilled nurse force, how are you going to replace them? If you lose a percentage of doctors, where are they going to come from? How are you going to do this? And that's why, to me, it's fine to say the vaccine mandate, but you have to have that alternative that's there. And you can make it an onerous alternative. You know, who likes to have that swab stuck up their nose two or three times a week to make sure that they're not testing positive for COVID? But if you don't have that escape valve, um, I, I think you're, you're asking for trouble. And any of these school districts that mandate vaccines and do it without giving people that alternative of being tested to make sure they don't test positive. It's it's a recipe for disaster, period. Okay, when we come back, I want it. I want it now. I don't want to wait eight weeks. Or would you wait eight weeks? I'll explain. We'll discuss. Get help for your house this Saturday from Eric Brown. The president of Siding Unlimited knows his stuff. Yes, their name is Siding, but they do so much more. Windows by Pella and others, roofing, decks. That's why they are Siding Unlimited. Eric can advise you with anything about your home's exterior. Make a point to listen and call Eric this Saturday on WTMJ's Fix-It Show. And remember why they are called Siding Unlimited. They are Siding and much, much more. See SidingUnlimited.com and you'll see. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. A couple of years ago, we were on a listener trip and we started in, in Budapest. And our, our guide, Budapest was, you know, when, when there was the, you know, the, the, the old Soviet Union, it was behind the Iron Curtain. It was really interesting because I was talking to one, the, we had this guide who was just talking about how horrible it was to live under the old Soviet Union, which would be a good object lesson for a lot of people now who who don't really understand how good we have it in this country. But anyhow, one of the things she was explaining is if you wanted a new car, if you wanted a car in the Soviet Union, well, you, you didn't just go to a dealership. What what you did is you, you ordered the car and then you waited three or four years. You had to pay for it up front. And then two or three years from when you ordered it, the car got delivered and you didn't have a choice of color or whatever. You, you got, there was one of, there was only like three different types of cars that you could get and, and, and you, you got that car. No choice of color, nothing. You, that's just how it worked. You, you did not have those choices. Now, in this country, when, when you buy an automobile, if you're in the market for a car, a new car, what do you do? You, you go, you, you go to dealerships and, and, and maybe you shop around and you test drive a couple cars and you get this idea of, OK, what 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 type of car do I want? And you go and you look at the inventory that the dealer has and maybe you've decided I want 
I want I don't I want a Ford Escape. And so you go to the dealership and you say, okay, they've got they've got three 2021 Ford Escapes and one is red and one is blue and one is black and they've got different features on them and then you kind of say, okay, I want one of these and then you, you sort of negotiate and you end up getting what, whatever car you get. And then within a day or two, you drive the car off the lot. I mean, that's typically how this works. In Europe, that is not the case. As a general rule in Europe, what happens is you, if you want a new car, you you order the car from the factory and you order the car exactly like you like it. I mean, this is the color I want. This is it. There's less negotiating on prices, but you order it from the factory. And then two months later, the, the car appears and you go to the dealership and you pick it up. That, that's how it works. You don't go to the dealership and look at their available inventory. Well, Ford is considering changing the U.S. model and going more to the European model. Here's the story in the Wall Street Journal today. Ford wants more buyers to order online and wait rather than pick off the lot. In a shift in the way it sells vehicles, Ford plans to do a bigger portion of its sales by having buyers order from the factory and wait, maybe six to eight weeks, rather than pick from the selection available at a dealership. Company executives say efforts to shift more of Ford's retailing operations to the so-called build-to-order model, where people custom order online and take delivery at the dealership, would help cut inventory costs for the company and the dealers. Being that, you know, the dealers, if people are ordering from the, the factory and then picking it up at the dealer, they, they wouldn't, dealers wouldn't have to have, you know, eight or ten different models and colors, different, you know, colors of a particular model on the lot. It would also, the story says, help Ford to deliver more vehicles that customers specifically want while weeding out the hard to sell models that end up collecting dust at dealerships and lead to profit sapping discounts. So the idea would be, okay, if there's a, I don't know, if, if the dealer has, uh, I don't know, pick, pick whatever color you don't like, brown. Okay, you don't like brown. So the dealer, and, and most people, a lot of people would never order a brown car. So the dealership is sitting with two brown cars on its lot, and, and nobody wants them because you want this particular model, but nobody wants it in brown. Well, the, the car, in order to sell it, you have to give like these huge discounts. So the idea is getting people to order from the factory and get exactly what they want, and then, you know, six to eight weeks later, the, the car is there. All right, our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, the concerns that people have, that, that the companies have, and that some of these automakers have, is that Americans want immediate satisfaction. You decide you're going to go car shopping on a Saturday. Well, you, you want to you wanna come home that day or pick it up on Monday or whatever. You, you want that car right away. You don't want to wait six to eight weeks. And the concern is that if, all right, if Ford... It's going to make you wait six to eight weeks to get the car. Admittedly, the car that has everything you want on it, you're not going to wait the six to eight weeks. You're going to be inclined to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to buy a, a GM or I'm going to buy a Honda or I'm going to buy a Toyota that I can, I can drive away in the next day or so. And yes, it might not be the perfect car. It might not have every feature I want on it, but it, it's got enough that I'm cool with it. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. W- will Americans accept this? Instead of 
going to the dealership, looking at the cars that are on the lot. You you just you order one and wait six to eight weeks for it to be delivered. It's exactly what you want, but you're going to have to wait a month, month and a half, two months for it. Will that work? 855-616-1620. And I'm intrigued at your response to this because I, I, I have a very dear friend who drives expensive foreign cars. <laughs> it, it, it is her one well, I, I don't want to say her one vice, and I'm not even saying it's a vice because she can afford it. But you know, every few years there, there's a specific type of expensive foreign car that she wants, and and she will she will order it, and and they'll make it at the factory in Europe, and then it'll come in, and it'll you know, she she waits months for it, but it, it's exactly the car she wants. That's it would never occur to her to go to a dealership and try to buy a car like that off the lot because she probably wouldn't find that car on there anyways. 855-616-1620. Is this the new model? Will this work in the United States? We discuss. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Here's a text, Jeff. I like the current model of buying a car. Go online to the dealership, see what they have, pick one out, and then go pick it up the same day. Actually, that's the, the last car I purchased, which was in January. That, that's sort of what I did. I, I, knew, I, I knew the type of car I wanted. And I knew the stuff that I wanted on it. And so I, I was on the Internet. And I was looking at a couple different dealerships to see, you know, who had this vehicle and, and you know, who had it with the stuff I, I wanted and what the colors were. And, and for me, I mean, I, I didn't I mean, there's certain colors that I wouldn't have taken, but it, it really I didn't care if the car was going to be in white or black or like a gray or whatever. I, I was flexible on that. And and so then, you know, once I, I saw what they had, I went in to the dealership and said, OK, I, I'm interested in this particular car. And we made a deal right away. And a day later, I drive it home. Jeff in Fox Point. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff, unless it's some weird situation where someone's out of a vehicle and you need one the next day, I think people are, are going to wait because if they want it bad and badly enough, they are going to wait it, wait for it. Mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I've been waiting for an autograph poster that I bought since like May 1st, but I don't want to do anything to disrupt the process. So mm-hmm. I'm being nice and patient and I'm just waiting for it to arrive so I don't tick anyone off. Yeah, no, thanks. I guess the, 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 con- the problem is if, if Ford does this, thanks for the call, Jeff, if Ford does this and, and Chevy doesn't, so the idea would be you go to the Ford dealership and you say, okay, I, I want the I want the Escape and this is what I want on it. And they say, okay, fine, you, you can order this and we'll have it in eight weeks. And you go, oh, I don't know. All right, then will we'll, we'll buyers then say, well, no, I don't want to wait eight weeks. I'm not going to get the Escape. I'm going to go and I'm going to go to Toyota or I'm going to go to Honda or I'm going to go to Chevy or whatever. And, and I'm going to buy a similar sort of a vehicle um, where I can drive away with it right away. Jeff, honestly, once I make up my mind to buy something, I'm not willing to wait very long for it. In general, Americans are not very patient. We have a hard time waiting in line at the McDonald's drive-thru. Um, yeah. Jeff, I ordered a Ford Bronco three months ago, and and I'm waiting. And, you know, look, and I, I've done the, the car ordering route as well. Um, my late wife, she, she had a VW Beetle, and, and she wanted the VW Beetle, and we couldn't find the, the right one. So, I mean, I think we ordered it in October and, and didn't get it till the, the next spring. But, but she knew what she wanted and we were willing to wait. But again, in that case, it was a specific vehicle that was relatively hard to, to find. 
Um, I guess I, I, the, the big question to me is when you're in a situation where it's not that way, where it's a situation where you've got, um, again, you're in a position where you're, you're looking for, I don't know, you're, 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 you want the immediate thing and you don't care. I, I don't care whether it's, you know, this brand of car or that brand of car necessarily. I just want it right away. I, I think it's going to take some education. At the same time, I do acknowledge, I think that there is an appeal that's out there for, for people who, I don't know, um, just don't need the car right away and, and maybe plan ahead. And that way you get to get exactly what you want. And I certainly understand the benefit for dealerships from doing something like this. I mean, the big benefit, of course, being the whole notion that, you know, you're not going to have to guess what people want. You're not going to have to guess and say, okay, if, if I, if I get six of these cars, is this particular model going to sell or is it not going to sell? If it doesn't sell, how do I get rid of it? And, you know, how, how do I, why am I paying to keep uh, this car on my lot that nobody's looking at and it doesn't have any interest anyways? So, I mean, I do think that there is that appeal. I could see how this would, would work, but candidly, I think you'd have to train the American consumers. For me, as a general rule, I think I, I would probably be willing to, to plan ahead and wait, and if it let me get exactly what I wanted to get, well, I think there would be a benefit to that. Okay, John McCure in in just a moment. Don't go anywhere.